0: Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future.
1: In November, when OpenAI unleashed the newest, most advanced version of its chatbot, ChatGPT, it immediately captured the imagination. As we've covered on this show... ChatGPT represents a major leap forward for generative AI in that it can converse with and respond to users in a natural, almost human-like way. And so far, it's been a hit. ChatGPT boasts over 100 million active monthly users after only two months, making it one of the fastest-growing applications ever. On March 14th, OpenAI unveiled GPT-4, a more advanced version of the AI language model that was unveiled in November. Meanwhile, others have quickly entered the field, as Google announced its own advanced chatbot, Bard, last month, while several former OpenAI engineers have announced Claude. The arms race in the advanced chatbot field has begun. Some lawyers and law professionals have seen the potential for advanced chatbots to help supplement their work, allowing them to perform tasks more efficiently and quickly. One such area is legal research. In that vein, CaseTechs launched CoCounsel earlier this month. CoCounsel does not utilize the commercially available ChatGPT. Instead, their customized model was developed in partnership with OpenAI and trained on the latest version of its GPT large language model, which means GPT-4, as well as Case Texas proprietary legal database and search system. CoCounsel functions as a legal assistant, helping users draft all sorts of legal documents. Users can utilize CoCounsel to help draft briefs, compose research memos, draw up contracts and analyze them, and even write correspondence, all by typing their questions or requests into a prompt. My name is Victor Lee, and I'm Assistant Managing Editor for the ABA Journal. Joining me on today's episode of the Legal Rebels podcast is Jake Heller, CEO and co-founder of CaseTex. He, Pablo Arredondo, and Laura Safdie co-founded CaseTex in 2013 and were named Legal Rebels in 2017. Jake joins us today to talk about co-counsel, as well as the potential of advanced chatbots to change the legal industry. Welcome to the show, Jake.
2: Thanks and happy to be here.
1: Yeah, and and actually, before we start, you you told me about your about your child just being born. Congratulations!
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, a, lot, a lot launching here at the Heller household.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about, uh, I guess you know, your second more important uh, product as of late. But first, tell me a little about yourself. How did you get into the legal field, and what drew you to the tech side of it?
2: So I grew up in Silicon Valley, and when I was a kid, I thought I was going to be a coder. I spent nights and weekends even in middle school, high school, et cetera, uh, building websites, building applications. And early on, I also fell in love with law and policy and ended up down a path towards law school. And I had the amazing opportunity to go to Stanford Law School to clerk uh, at the appeals court level, to work in government, to work for a great law firm. And while I was doing all of that, and while I found a real passion for law, I still very much was drawn to building stuff and really enjoyed coding and would still do that in my spare time despite trying to build, you know, 2,500 hours a year or whatever. Um, And one thing that really stuck out to me when I was practicing was almost every single thing that I had to do, whether it be document review or legal research, writing things for litigation, even a decade ago, I saw where um, AI technologies and similar technologies were headed. And in as a consumer of those technologies, using technologies like, like the iPhone or Google, I knew that we can be doing a lot better for lawyers. And I felt held back by the tech I was using in my law firm practice. And I felt like I was unable to do as good of a job as I wanted to or needed to do for my clients. You know, we started case a decade ago, even uh, the technology as, as nascent as it was then, with the idea that We could apply some of this new and then cutting-edge technology to really benefit the legal profession and legal professionals, and uh, have been working on that ever since.
1: Was there like a specific eureka moment for you? Like, was there something that you know either like a memo that you did, or you know, or or something that you saw at your firm where it just kind of like lit the ball over your head, so to speak, or was just a lot of things that you saw and experienced that made that made you think, okay, there must be a better way of doing this?
2: It was definitely a lot of things slowly creeping up, but there were a few moments where I I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is taking so long. For one of my clients, I remember having this classic conversation with our law librarian at the firm where they said, Jake, you just spent in one evening, $3,600 of the client's money trying to research this topic. And all I was trying to do is answer a very kind of specific legal research question to help them with a very particular matter. And not knowing that i had stepped outside the bounds of Westlaw's or LexisNexis's, I forget which, one of their you know, research products, all of a sudden I was costing the client an arm and a leg. And I remember thinking, all this information is public somewhere. This has got to be cheaper. And this is a totally unacceptable situation. And by the way, I didn't sleep. So I paid $3,600 to not sleep, <laughs> to <laughs> barely find what I was looking for. And more broadly speaking, if you're a technology Oriented person and you spend much time working in, in the legal profession, you just see inefficiencies everywhere. And you see, oh my gosh, this thing that took me 12 hours could have been 12 minutes had we been applying X technology from Google or Y technology from open source or whatever it is. And that that slow creeping feeling of just just feeling like we could be doing so much better as a profession just kept on hitting me over the head, over and over and over again, and eventually put me in a place where I was like, you know what, I got to start something and do something about this.
1: Is there something about the legal research field that kind of makes it resistant to, to embracing new technology? Because when I was in law school, um, you know, internet's already pretty prevalent at that point. And I think I think at that point, you know, Lexus and, and Westlaw were still available on CD, but they were just starting to get a foothold on the web and whatnot. But we were always told you know, you still want to check the books, you still want to, you still want to make sure you have the books ready in case, in case, you know, the technology misses something or something goes wrong or blah, 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 that way you're covered. And, you know, we, like, I think we had to do like memos where we only use books and not use the internet at all. Uh, And this is, you know, early 2000s. So, I mean, is there, is there something about, and and, and even though, you know, the legal research field has, you know, uh, has grown by leaps and bounds since then and using technology and whatnot, is there something about technology that makes it more resistant or more suspicious for practitioners?
2: It's really interesting. I will say, taking a step back, even outside of legal research, generally speaking, I think there's this feeling or this meme that lawyers are kind of backwards with technology. And there are absolutely examples of that being the case. I've definitely seen that, right? And and some of the things you mentioned, you know, even when I went to law school, a little bit after you... Same idea, when we were on the law review, we would have to hand check every single citation in a book format just in case the online version was wrong. That's crazy, you know? And it's really, really conservative. But I think actually those those are the exception and not the rule. What I've actually seen is that lawyers, when they see great technology and when they understand how it can fundamentally change their practice or their business, they are really willing to give it a shot try it in practice, and in many cases, implement it for the benefit of their clients. We're seeing that right now with co-counsel. This this technology is relatively new. I mean, as you mentioned, GPT-4 was literally announced an hour before we started recording this podcast, right? And that's the technology that we built co-counsel on top of. But we'll be announcing over the coming weeks, some really major and established large law firm institutions, as well as dozens of smaller firms and nonprofits already using the product. So I think what you're really seeing in most cases is not lawyers being conservative or unnecessarily conservative. I think that they're waiting for products that are really, really good. And it's actually really hard to make a product that um, makes an impact on the profession in a substantial way. We've been working on this for a decade, right? You know, but once you have it and once lawyers can see, oh my gosh, this can potentially enable me to serve more clients when I had to turn people away or, review more documents as part of a due diligence process that otherwise would just be totally in the dark about or what have you. And they, they see that kind of impact, and it clicks for them, and they're among some of the fastest adopters of technology when the technology
1: makes sense. So we'll talk more about co-counsel, but first let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
0: As a lawyer, keeping up with developments in information security, cyber threats, and e-discovery is a never-ending process. Fortunately, the Digital Detectives podcast does the hard work for you. I'm Sharon Nelson, and together with John Simic, we bring on industry experts to discuss the latest tech developments that help keep your data secure, only on the Digital Detectives podcast. Shh, this is the library, the Modern Law Library podcast, and I'm your host, Lee Rawls. Okay. Maybe it's not a real library, so we don't need to whisper. But on every episode, we talk with an author about their most recent book, both fiction and nonfiction, from manuals to dystopian fantasy novels. The Modern Law Library podcast explores the intersection of writing and the legal world.
1: Follow the ABA journal Modern Law Library on the Legal Talk Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So obviously, uh, we're here to talk about co counsel, and you talked a little bit about it earlier. So how long has this been in development? You said a decade?
2: So we've been working on case for about a decade. And as you noted at the beginning of the show, case really began focused around legal research. But co is much bigger than legal research. Co-counsel is an AI legal assistant that can, as you noted, do legal research for you, yes, but also review documents, review contracts, draft the first draft of certain documents, put together uh, summaries of documents, and much else, right? So this product in particular is new for us. We just announced it about two weeks ago and are rolling it out right now to uh, dozens of clients, but it's it, that's relatively new. We've been working in the general field that you know these chatbots and other AI systems, this this field called large language models for about the last five years. But CoCounsel as a product and, and building on top of GPT-4, we've been working on the better part of the last year. So in that sense, it's relatively new given the history of the company.
1: Gotcha. So you knew that chat capabilities were about to improve dramatically in order to make this kind of product a reality. I mean, at what point did you know for sure, okay, this is coming and this is going to happen, so we better we better get on it.
2: About a day after getting access to an earlier version of GPT-4, it was really obvious that this model was a transformative moment for legal professionals. Very early on working with a team at OpenAI, we started playing with it and Immediately we're seeing that it had capabilities that earlier versions of, of even their models were just unable to do um, around reasoning, understanding extremely difficult legal concepts and, and information, parsing through contracts, being able to accurately answer the contents of what was inside a document. I, I remember um, one of the first tests we ran, my co-founder Pablo pulled up a fake email that he created and it went something like this. It was like, to Sally from Jennifer, I would love to get privileged <laughs> advice from the star of law and order. It'd be a, such a privilege <laughs> to get attorney client, you know, advice from that, from him. He's such a stud, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea is that um, to make it seem like it's the most privileged email in the world to any older algorithm, but for a nuanced algorithm to really understand language to say, Hey, there's no privilege here whatsoever, right? So we asked the the model: Is is this is this document attorney-client privilege? It said no. Why would it be? It's just about a person admiring a TV star. As <laughs> where every single previous algorithm looking at that exact same email would say, well, it has the word privilege and attorney-client all over it. Of course, it's privileged. Right. And, and that kind of nuanced understanding of language was something that really blew us away. Something that that said to us, oh my gosh, this is something that really, for the first time ever, we're seeing an AI that has a really deep an intelligent understanding of what's going on in this document and many, many others like that. So we, we were just kind of blown away with it pretty immediately.
1: Well, I'm sure it's not the first time that like someone from Law & Order was asked actual legal advice or... <laughs>
2: asked, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, would not be the first time for sure. You know, Victor, one, one other thing to say here, which is that you're using the term chatbots, which I, I get it because ChatGPT was the really exciting you know, moment, I would say, where people woke up to how great this technology is. But to say something a little controversial here, I actually think the most exciting application of this technology is not chat. I think the most exciting application of this technology is taking a technology that can read, write, and understand at a postgraduate level, which is where we're at right now, and turn it on to questions that aren't just about chatting with or talking to the system, but instead even more basic things like, is this document responsive to a request? right? Classic discovery or due diligence or, or document review. Does this contract contain the following provisions? If, you know, so-and-so party did X, Y, and Z, would that violate the contract? Tell me if this case as part of research is actually relevant to the request, and if so, why? These aren't necessarily chat questions. These are more, you know, general artificial intelligence questions that one might pose to an artificial intelligence system. And, and again, what we've seen here that absolutely blew us away is, this system does really, really well at all those tasks. So, to to us, part of why we decided to build Co Council is this goes way beyond just chatting with it and into situations where you can review millions of documents in a night and get world class responses uh, in terms of accuracy and precision and recall. and And that's what really blew us away.
1: Gotcha. So it's almost like having another lawyer in there with you, but like one that can like you know comb through all this data, you know, at an exponentially faster pace than any any human could.
2: Yeah, that's right. And that, that's why we're calling it, an AI legal assistant. We, we kind of imagine co-counsel to be that you know, additional pair of hands that you're going to just turn on to combing through all that data or go, you know, ask it to go research a question for you. It'll read hundreds of cases and prepare a memo for you in the course of two minutes. And that kind of power to have your own uh, assistant there doing all that work for you, we think really will enable lawyers and legal professionals to do a lot more with a lot less.
1: So uh, when I spoke with you guys a few years ago, I guess you had just introduced Kara, you know, which was an AI legal research tool that could scan documents and then returns all kinds of citations and authorities and things like that to help lawyers then draft responses or whatnot. So, I mean, obviously just, you know, going through with what you said earlier, but how much of a leap is co-counsel from from what you guys did in Kara?
2: I think it is such a phenomenal leap. Yeah, I, I don't remember the exact quote, but somebody once said, you're always embarrassed of your earlier works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And by comparison to what we're capable of doing with the AI of today, Kara, which by the way, is only like five-year-old technology, yeah. is, is child's play, frankly. Because what the AI was in the past was AI that was good at doing a single task, a single narrow task pretty well. So that the narrow task that we designed our AI to do for Kara was to read through a brief pull out all the citations, understand what's going on with the brief, and then find do, do new research for you to find the new cases to read in addition to those citations. a supremely useful tool used by more than half of the Amlaw 200 and was copied subsequently by Westlaw, LexisNexis, and Bloomberg, right? Case, a brief analysis became just a part of the legal research fabric. We're really proud of that. But we're in a totally different ballgame now. We're now at a place where AI can read, write, and understand at such a high level that it can do many tasks First of all, not just one that one task that you've trained it for, but many tasks and do them all at a world class level, at a level that that is scary, scary good. And that to us is a is a huge inflection point in terms of the utility for AI uh, and its application to legal practice.
1: Gotcha. So if I'm a lawyer out there or if I'm, you know, like a legal professional or or, or intern or whatever. And, and, and I'm listening to this or I'm, I'm reading, I'm, I'm following the news and whatnot, and I'm intrigued by this technology, but I'm not really sure how to approach it or how to properly utilize it. You know, let, let's say if, if I had to draft a research memo about some point of law, how would I go about using co Council to help me do that?
2: So for co-counsel in particular, the way you'd engage it is you'd open up co-counsel and you can do two things with co Council. You can just kind of chat with it. In which case, it'll feel a lot like ChatGPT, but that's not how we'd recommend you'd approach this problem. For this problem in particular, you would engage in one of co-counsel's many skills. Co-counsel's skills are kind of pre-programmed capabilities within co-counsel that lets it uh, engage in these kinds of tasks like writing a legal research memo. So... For the legal research skill, what you do is you click on the legal research memo skill, you'd put in in your own kind of language, your research request, and it can include the facts of your case, it can include the jurisdiction that you're filing in, the kinds of cases you're looking for, really whatever, basically in the same language you might give it to a colleague or to an associate or to a, to a paralegal to kick off a research request, and you hit go. And after that, what it will do behind the scenes for you over the course of about a minute and a half to two minutes? is it will take your request and turn that into dozens of different research queries that it will use to research against our daily updating database of cases, statutes, rules, and regulations. And it will execute those queries and read through all of the results. So we'll start reading through hundreds of cases and statutes and regulations, et cetera. It will then take its understanding of all of the uh, materials that it read to start drafting you a memo and finish with its you know one to five paragraph essay answering your original question, all within the course of about ninety seconds. Um, so that's how you use it. It's it's pretty pretty darn simple to use, but the, it's incredibly powerful in terms of the output you get.
1: And a big thing about you know just ChatGPT and other kind of. You know, uh, you know, language models and whatnot that I've that I've seen is just and, and just what what people have said about it is that obviously there's a there's a danger against you know coming up with wrong information or inaccurate inaccurate information or things like that. So how would you suggest the user, um, you know, who who's using Co counsel how would you suggest that they guard against? You know, like relying on wrong information coming up, or uh, guarding against like you know making sure that the that the information that they cite is, is is accurate, or is it just based on your database? So therefore, it's you know, the the information comes from a database. So, so uh, so you guys have already vetted it.
2: Yeah, it's more the latter, and it's a really interesting and important distinction. A lot of these chat models, you are just talking directly to it. Uh, the analogy that I have is, it's like you're talking to the smartest person you've ever met, who's read every book and every case and every every everything, right? But that same person you're talking to, you're asking them to answer from memory. And you're also saying to them implicitly, because this is how these models work, you have to answer, you can't say, I don't know. And in that context of just chatting with it, you're gonna get sometimes like, hey, what's a case from the Western District of Kentucky from 2012 that says X, Y, and Z? If you ask it that question, it may answer, but like answering from memory, it may be right and it may be wrong. And of course, in a legal professional setting, that's unusable. You can't use those kind of systems like ChatGPT to do things like research or to analyze information and get an accurate uh, answer every single time. The way we build co-counsel is pretty fundamentally different. When you're working with one of co councils skills, instead of answering based on memory, it is answering based on the documents that you give it or the legal research database that we give it, uh, and it will only answer based on that information. So to kind of go back to that analogy, if you take the smartest person you ever met and you told her, read these 100 cases, and based on these 100 cases and nothing else answer this question, what is a case from the District of Kentucky that says X, Y, and Z, that person would be able to give you a stellar answer really, really quickly because they're so smart and so well-read. And that's exactly how our system works. We are saying to the AI, don't draw from memory. Don't access your potentially outdated and incorrect memory banks for this information. Instead, use your incredible capabilities and incredible knowledge and and intelligence to read through this information and fashion an answer based on the information you've read. This is a process in the literature, by the way, called retrieval augmented generation. And we have found that the the big change with GPT-4, frankly, is that it's able to get the answer on those kinds of questions right 100% of the time. And that, that's that to us is a really big inflection point, right? When you can you know, go away from this, this real problem that we've seen in the past with AI systems being incorrect and instead based off of real actual materials, that's an absolutely game-changing kind of possibility. And that's why we're launching Co-Council now as opposed to when GPT-3 came out three years ago or in large language models were invented five years ago. This is the inflection point, the ability to get these answers right When they're based off of real information that you're putting in front of the model
1: before we continue let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor the digital edge podcast where the
0: law and technology intersect i'm sharon nelson and together with jim calloway we invite professionals from all fields to discuss the latest trends tips and tools within the legal industry Stay up to date on the rapidly changing legal tech landscape with the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network.
2: Today's legal news is rarely as straightforward as the headlines that accompany them. On Lawyer to Lawyer, we provide the legal perspective you need to better understand the current events that shape our society. Join me, Craig Williams, and a wide variety of industry experts as we break down the top stories. Follow Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network or wherever you subscribe
1: to podcasts. And we're back. So you had started talking about GPT-4 and the advances that uh, this program has made compared to previous iterations. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what is it about GPT-4 that makes it such a big, such a major advance from, you know, GPT-3.5 or 3?
2: In short, it's just way smarter. It is better at logic and reasoning, right? There are all kinds of uh, games that people are putting on Twitter that seem to trip up chat GPT. I kept on putting those examples in GPT-4, and it falls for none of those. It is a much better reader. So it's able to read through really, really complex, like merger and acquisition agreements, through really difficult terms inside of terms of use or terms of service, through cases that deal with super difficult topics, and understand it all at a, again, I'd say a postgraduate level. And based on both of those, the ability to kind of infer and the ability to understand, you're talking about a machine that all of a sudden that you can point it at, you know, thousands or millions of documents, and uh, as as only a machine can, it can read through all of that in superhuman speeds, and and that's what got us, you know, super super excited compared to GPT 3.5, which itself is a, is a major advancement. I mean, to give you some context, you know, one one of our studies that is actually part of the GPT four announcement showed. That GPT-4 can pass the bar of the 90th percentile. GPT 3.5 was at the 10th percentile, right? So we're talking about a, a massive leap in reading, understanding logic, um, and, and question answering capabilities. And it's just it's just about it getting smarter and more capable. That puts it in a position where, as were before, it was not something you can give you know in a legal professional setting to somebody and, and kind of rely on the output. And now, now we believe you can.
1: I think that's probably higher than how than what I did on the bar exam. But, Definitely um, higher than what uh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, but hey, well, whatever. We both passed, right? So, yep. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about what this technology can do. What are some things that it can't do? Or what are some things that it doesn't do as well, uh, That, but but that maybe it's working on?
2: That, it's a great question. And like all technology, it has its limitations. At, at a very high level, I would say that it is, again, reading, writing, understanding at postgraduate level, but it is not mistake-free or error-free. And the times where we've seen in our, our kind of beta test that we did for the last six months or so with our clients, the times I've seen it get um, the worst answers is when, especially when the question posed was potentially vague or ambiguous, it's definitely not going to understand what you mean every single time. So directing it with extreme specificity and treating it almost like a junior player on the team, that needs a lot of like clear direction, but then we'll do a very good job in the clear direction. We found to be sometimes necessary to get the right results. It's also funny because it's this this thing that can brilliantly understand like a very complex contract, for example, but then you ask it to add two numbers from the contract to get a total deal amount, and it's not great at math. And so we had to develop kind of simpler systems that aren't even AI to supplement the insane intelligence of this reading and writing technology, which is GPT-4, just to make it good, at very, very basic arithmetic division, you know, subtraction, et cetera, which is kind of a funny, you know, it's, it's an AI that can do so much, but it can't do that yet. And finally, you know, what I will say is, especially when you're dealing with really complex documents or really kind of hidden meanings, there will be times like with a human where it just might fly over its head, right? And You can see that, for example, in document review contexts where there's some super hidden meaning in some sort of document that even a human might miss, then I wouldn't necessarily expect GPT-4 to pick up on that either. Although I will say it's really blown us away sometimes where it's very obvious if somebody talking in code and it flags that as something that is potentially important to review. So, and maybe the very last thing here, it is not funny. It can barely tell, tell a joke. <laughs> it's funnier than GPT 2 3.5. But one of the things that you'll see when you're working with it is it does have its limitations. And I think maybe humor is a true sign of intelligence. And this thing is not funny. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's interesting because it can do things for you. Like when you're chatting with it, like come up with great analogies to put in your brief. Right. I always lacked for analogies. My co-founder, Pablo, is really gifted at this, but I always lacked for great analogies to use when trying to make a persuasive case or an argument. It is really good at coming up with analogies, but it's just not funny yet.
1: <laughs> so it can't do math. It's not funny. So, I mean, I guess one, one could argue that it's already a pretty consistent with a lot of people in the legal industry, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't think about it that way, but that's exactly right.
1: <laughs> so let's talk about sort of you know the reaction to this kind of technology, because obviously, Whenever something like this comes out, there's always going to be people that are afraid of it, or people that you know feel the worst, or you know. I mean, there was that that big New York Times story about. Like that chatbot that turned into a possessive stalker on somebody. Um, <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Yeah, um, and obviously, you know, people that watch too many sci-fi movies, like Terminator and whatnot. There's always that. You know, it was a how from uh, um, 2001. Obviously, those are just extreme examples, but there is, you know, concern from people, you know, that you know about this technology. Like as we've seen with like unauthorized practice of law and things like that. So, what do you think are sort of the dangers of this technology, and like, what are some of the fears that 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 you know you might have about something like this?
2: Taking a step back, I think that there are a lot of fears and a lot of concerns, and a lot of them are um, have their place rooted in something valid. And I think that it, it takes real kind of responsibility and intelligence to navigate this next phase to make sure that everything that we do ends up you know, for the better of the profession and for the better of the people working on it. And you know, I'm happy to kind of dive through some of the things that we've seen and heard already and how we're addressing it. But I think this will be an evolving point or evolving issue. On the issue of un- unlicensed practice of law, our answer here is we think this technology best serves lawyers and gives them information, gives them the capability to make a better decision, puts them in the right kind of position to better advocate for their clients. But we don't think it's ready yet to put directly in the hands of consumers and offer great legal advice yet. For a lot of the reasons you, may have, you, you mentioned earlier, like, if you're just chatting with it, it may give the wrong answer. I was just chatting with um, a different chatbot from Anthropic earlier today, and I asked it what the statute of limitations for murder in Texas was. And the answer is, it's, there's no statute of limitations, but it said it's five years, <laughs> right? So I think that if a consumer is chatting with these, with these applications, they might be seriously mistaken about the you know, true legal advice. And would put you in a position to make a potentially bad decision. So I do think that it's you know the way you deal with these UPL issues, which I think are real, is you make sure this is a tool that um, supplements what lawyers do. And in that regard, I think it is really, really, really well positioned to do that. Do this. That's why we're positioning our product as an AI legal assistant. We believe there's an assistant, you know, that that assists lawyers and puts them in a position to make great decisions based on the right information. You know, I think I think some people are worried about whether or not AI will take people's jobs. And I will say the technology is insanely impressive. And when you're dealing with it, almost everybody's first reaction is, oh my God, I used to spend hours doing this and I just did that in minutes. Oh my God, right? And especially for a profession that builds by the hour, that's a a bit of an uncomfortable feeling at first, right? What we've seen so far, even from our beta customers, and what I believe will be the case going forward, is that it just empowers lawyers to do more for their clients, to go deeper on the topics and issues that they know they want to go deeper on, to offload some of the lower value work to an AI so that they can do the most high value stuff. And in fact, the legal profession, and you've been covering this you know, for years now, right? The legal profession has gone through so many shifts that have made it more effective, more efficient. We used to research just in libraries, and now you can do that online with a click of a button. We used to write snail mail. Now it's email, right? More recently, we've introduced Zoom depositions instead of sometimes traveling eight hours just to do a deposition. We've become becoming more and more and more effective and efficient as a profession for decades now. And there are more lawyers than there have been, and we're making more money than than we ever have. And I think that's because each time some manual, slow, and unnecessarily complex or difficult process was made more efficient by technology, we as lawyers have found ways to support people better and do more for them and increase the value of our work. I think that trend continues. And I think this will accelerate that trend, actually, like hyper-accelerate, because this this technology is generational. It is an absolute inflection point. And I think everybody who interacts with GPT-4 will see what, what we're seeing, which is this is a bigger technology shift than everything else that's mentioned before. Don't get me wrong. It's it's going to be massive. But at the same time, I don't think it's going to be massive in a sense that will be bad for lawyers. I think it, it empowers them and will
1: let, let them do much, much more. And so to wrap up, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so?
2: Check us out on casetext.com. And I'm also like the most reachable founder in the world. I'm Jake at KSX.com, Or you can tweet uh, at Jacob Heller because uh, at Jake was taken. <laughs> um, and uh, happy to talk anytime. Love to talk about this stuff. I love to think about this stuff. Love to hear feedback or criticisms. Uh, it's all all part of the process. Right.
1: Thanks for joining us today, Jake. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me. Really fun talking.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please go to your favorite app and check out some other titles from Legal Talk Network. In the meantime, I'm Victor Lee and I'll see you next time on the ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast.
0: If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com. LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network